Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point with me, Li Xin, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is undergoing exponential growth and transformation at breakneck speed. But how can we ensure it develops in a way that benefits humanity without unforeseen risks? On Wednesday, China released a position paper on strengthening ethical governance of AI at a United Nations meeting in Geneva, making clear to the world for the first time China's vision and principles of the global governance of AI. China says it finds it important to enhance the understanding of all countries on AI ethics and ensure that AI is safe, reliable and controllable. What exactly is China's vision for ethical AI? And is it different or similar to Western concepts? What is China's position on individual privacy and data security? I'm pleased to be joined live from Beijing by Professor Zheng Yi from the Chinese Academy of uh, Sciences. He's also a member of the National Governance Committee of New Generation AI. He's an important expert behind this position paper. Professor Zheng, thank you very much for joining us. So for the ordinary men and women around the world. Why does this paper matter? I think uh, when we develop AI as an enabling technology to power the development of the society, you have to make sure that the uh, tools is using in a good way, uh, not doing the bad thing. So uh, actually for this uh, AI ethical governance document, it talks about what we should do and what we shouldn't do uh, by using AI. So I think that's pretty important that AI should be used uh, for good. So uh, for example, in the Western uh, society, most of the ethical principles are talking actually about what it shouldn't be doing by using AI. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you, you, should, you should not use AI to, uh, to going against humanity. You shouldn't hurt people. Well, actually, you, you have to talk about what you should do first so that you're going to the right direction. Uh, for example, AI should be used uh, to power up the, the development of the society to push forward global sustainable development. Right. Um, I, I think that's one of the uh, most essential value we, we should have to use disruptive technologies to power this, mm -hmm. uh, the development okay. of the society. Well, this is actually the very first time that China released a international position paper on the ethical governance of AI. And the paper says that China is committed to building a community with a shared future for humankind in the domain of AI, advocating a people-centered approach and the principle of AI for good. So what exactly is China's vision for AI ethics? Is it very different from the Western vision? I think uh, for some of the countries, when they release the ethical principles for their own country, they were talking about, you know, different value systems. They're looking for, you know, like-minded partners. But for the uh, Chinese trying, we've been always having mind is, is living harmony and yet be different. So you have to, you know, realize these differences. So this is why we're not looking for, you know, like-minded partners. What we're looking for is the fundamental values that shared by all the humanity. And then, you know, to, to appreciate the differences uh, to develop um, AI. So I think the proposal uh, this time is for international consensus 
it's not looking for you know like-minded partners so that mm. you're only going to only one way all right the the european union and the united states have unveiled proposals for ai governance and development in recent years for instance uh, former u.s president donald trump said in 2019 that continued american leadership in ai is of paramount importance to maintaining the economic and national security of the united states and to shaping the global evolution of ai in a manner consistent with our meaning american values policies and priorities basically america first now, according to you and according to the position paper, China actually says AI should be capable of better um, empowering global sustainable development, enhancing common good for all humanity. Why does China not emphasize China first, which uh, is common sense? You know, countries put their national interests first. I think this is very related to the technology itself. I would see AI as a tool which is relevant, you know, it can be compared to electricity. It can be used by everyone. It's very powerful. Well, it is essential to, you know, to power up the global development. So you cannot really only have, you know, your own technology used only by yourself. So I think this is the duty for some countries like China, who is leading AI technology uh, development one of the leaders, and then, you know, to push forward this technology to power up the global development. Of course, China will use AI for economic growth, uh, for better life, well-being in China, uh, but this is not, not enough. This is not what China only can contribute to the world. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can do to, you know, help the global south, can use AI to do yeah. uh, climate action, uh, yeah, biodiversity but, conservation. But if America says America first, and China says global good first, and Europe has its values, which it insists must be included in AI governance, can there be a consensus then? Or is it going to be another divisive issue? I think so, because for China, now we're looking forward, you know, international consensus. When it comes to uh, international consensus, people have to, you know, to find the fundamental values that are shared by each other. Mm -hmm. There are similar trends at the UN, the UNESCO Global Recommendation on Ethics of AI, which is released by the end of last year. Mm -hmm. So it's a consensus of 193 uh, member states for, UNES for UNESCO. Uh, by that, I think right there, they're talking about the uh, and fundamental And China included. Values. China also signed up to that recommendation. Yes, yes. So China what are the common, to it. What are the common values that China also agreed to together with the other 192 member states? I think we put uh, people-centered view uh, right there. So you, you have to respect uh, the fundamental uh, human uh, values and also to respect uh, human dignity protect the uh, privacy, and also to ensure AI is safe and secure. Okay. Uh, AI should be uh, explainable, All right. interpretable. So, yeah, these are, these are very good uh, words to put on paper, and I hope that every country will stick to that. This time, this Chinese position paper also says governments should safeguard individual privacy and data security of AI, AI products and services, strictly following international regional norms for handling personal information, improve the mechanism for revoking personal data authorization, and oppose illegal collection and utilization of personal information. What has China done in this regard? Is China able to practice what it calls for here? 
I think the answer is yes. Last year, we released many documents and laws related to data. Uh, for example, the uh, personal information protection law uh, and also the data uh, security law. I think this is, I think they are very essential trials from China contributing not only to a better China but also to the world. I would like to give one of the examples is that DD, a equivalent version uh, of Uber in China, was punished because uh, they have uh, crawled many personal information some kind of in an illegal way and then it, they, were, they were punished for 8 billion Chinese yuan uh, for that uh, and that's it over, was according that's over to the... One, that's over 1 billion US dollars. Right. Yeah. They, it, it was according to the data uh, security law and the personal information protection law. And you can see that when we have these laws and then the government and also the general public have the ways, you know, to protect themselves although those giant companies from AI really are acquiring their data okay. every day, but they, they get their way to right. protect the, themselves. Yeah, um, China also calls for international co uh, cooperation and learn, mutual learning from each other on the regulation of uh, uh, AI in terms of ethics. What, are, what is one other best practice that China can share with others and what are China's current limitations at the same time? Right. I think uh, in China, for AI governance, we're doing robust or agile governance, uh, which means that we're using different tools to govern uh, AI. For example, ethical principles as soft law, and also standards, specifications, and laws. So uh, in the, in the China practice is that, although maybe now we don't really have an AI law, mm -hmm. but we have ethical principles and specifications. And when personal data was leaked, and then the, when the ministries were you know, having governance on these small AI companies, what they're using is not directly the AI law, because now we don't really have it. Mm -hmm. What they're using is these ethical specifications and talk to these small AI companies uh, and then to regulate them. But the limitation is the lack the of limitation, law? The li limitation is now, like Europe, they, they're having AI Act, and the US is having similar versions. And I would expect that for the future, uh, China should have explored the, the possibility of having laws for AI. What about uh, the people's awareness about their personal information, for instance, facial recognition, their faces are recognized when they go you know, into public in, uh, on the streets or into public events. What is the public awareness and how is the Chinese government responding to that finally? The voice, the voice is, is, is that they want their data to be protected. So they, they, they don't want massive surveillance, but if you have to use something like facial recognition, and the general public said that their data should be protected they could understand that it can be used for national defense, so social security, finally, and against the criminals, but please protect these personal data, and then they are okay to have the right way to use them, uh, to have them, uh, to, to get them better mm -hmm. uh, for their daily life. Does the government understand that there is a fine balance between 
protecting personal privacy and the use for the things you mentioned above defense you know social uh, safety every every country has to learn from it i think everyone is in a learning curve along this line so same thing happened to China. All right. Thank you so much. We're running out of time. We have to leave it there. Professor Zeng Yi, a main expert behind China's first international position paper on the governance of ethical AI. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, what is China really like? I spoke to an American professor who has lived in China for over three decades to find out. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. China has seen its fortunes rise from a closed agrarian society 40 years ago to a modern high-tech society where even the most remote inhabitants are synced up to the latest apps. However, either by apathy or hostility, Western general perceptions have not appreciated this peaceful story. They see something is amiss. Either China is backward or China is a competitor, rarely a friendly equal partner. What is China really like? American Bill Brown has lived in China for over 30 years and had a front row seat to China's story. He drove around China twice to even the most remote areas and saw how people's lives had been transformed. Earlier, I spoke to Professor Brown, who has lived in Xiamen, Fujian province in eastern China since 1988, who is now with the School of Management in Xiamen University. It's been 13 years since we last talked. A lot has happened. But, you know, the latest, the latest is the meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping in Bali, Indonesia. I'm so happy you, to see that. Yes. Did you pay attention? I'm sure you paid, paid attention to that. What's your reaction? My reaction is that regardless, regardless of the outcome, it's important that they met. I think it's face to face. It's it's easy in in the media to take a political stance, but face to face, it's harder to keep that hard, that hard headedness, <laughs> that distance. Uh, when I get angry with my wife, she always hold my hand, and I hated her holding my hand when I was angry. But I'd soften up, and finally, she told me after years the secret. She said it's hard to stay angry with somebody you're holding hands with. I thought that was wisdom. And so I think it's long overdue that Biden and Xi Jinping meet face to face. Mm -hmm. You came to China in 1988. You've seen practically, yes. you know, the whole process and the relationship between China and the United States wax and wane. Yes. And was there a point that you can recall that you were going like, oh, my goodness, why, how, why is things like that? Was there such a moment ever? Well, I was really disappointed because I felt like things, I mean, because I was in Taiwan in the 70s and I saw the relationship between the U.S. and mainland before that. And then I saw the turnaround after 78 and then and then it seemed like things were getting better. And then all of a sudden, it's hard to find out what the turning point was, but all of a sudden this anti-China rhetoric and what really surprised me, it used to be one party. And then the past two years, it's kind of both parties going back and forth on it. And I was really shocked by that. But the thing is, it's not too shocked because the, it's the bottom line is an economic issue. It's a trade issue. And, um, we like to say it's human rights or democracy or environment. We say all these things. But over the decades in China, I've read a lot about Chinese history and the relationship between the U.S. and China. 
and I've traveled all over China and seen the changes. And it amazes me how little has changed in some countries' attitudes and actions over the past 200 years. Let me show you a book. Okay. This is, this is The Breakup of China. It was hard to find this book. It's big and heavy. Yeah. But this book was published in 1899. And at that time, they were, this is like a catalog of all the different provinces of China and all the assets that the Europeans and Americans would get if they broke up China, if they'd broken up Africa. And they published this book. And, and to justify it, they, in the book, they talked about all of China's problems. I'm in Fujian, which is famous for tea for a thousand years. And in the book, they talked about tea in Fujian and how the Chinese didn't know how to grow or market tea. Mm. So the Europeans, to save the Chinese, were going to do this. But to do such a thing, to try and break up an ancient country like this, how do you justify it? The same year that they published this breakup of China, they also published several books, uh, China, the Yellow Peril, China at War at the World, presenting China as this great danger to the world. So you're seeing a, so a, was, a cycle, you're seeing this reoccurring at this moment. It's a cycle, yeah, it's a reoccurrence. And um, I was surprised to find that the US first instance of talking about human rights in China, sadly, was uh, the first opium war. Mm. Former President John Adams trying to get the Americans to support the first opium war. He went around drumming up support. And he said that China's restrictions on trade was a violation of the rights of men and nations. That's the first mention of human rights. Mm. But he didn't mention that China was only restricting trade in opium, nothing else. The emperor said we welcome trade in anything except opium. So it was very selective uh, in what they Very selective. Yeah. and. And it really amazed me, though, when I when I saw this book and saw the same year that they had published China at War with the World. At that time, the Western countries were here really tearing China apart like they did in Africa. And yet they presented China as a danger. What is China in your eyes? Because China is not perfect. You know, this is just uh, like every other no, country. It is not perfect. So how would you tell your friends in America what China really is? Because a lot of them from watching the things you just mentioned, from listening to the news, their impression is being swayed by this kind of narrative. So what is China? It's not a perfect place, obviously. No, I've driven over the 30-something years, I've driven personally about 200,000 kilometers around China. I've even driven through the Gobi Desert to Mongolia to Tibet before they had good roads to see face-to-face. -face. I didn't want to rely on Chinese media or foreign mm. media. I wanted to see face-to-face -face what is China really like. And I saw a lot of problems, but I also saw a lot of good. I wasn't surprised by the problems. Such a big country and so many people, you're going to have problems. But the difference with China, and I've read this through history and I've read it now, and, and, and I appreciate this, is that the for example, when they said China was the yellow peril, the threat to the world, that was ironic because even though all the Western countries, the U.S. was here in China taking it apart, Chinese had never at that point gone to a distant country to do anything to them. And yet they were saying China was the threat to the world. Right. Here is the, the, a, a dilemma or, or impossible paradox, because China says we yeah. will not seek hegemony. We are yeah. not going to be expansionist. We are not going to seek sphere of uh, influence. But, you know, a Western commentator would say, well, how do we know about the future? Uh, you know, your past record can, can never prove that you're not going to do something in the future. So, William, how do you look at this? Having been in China for 30 some years, what can you tell these people? I mean, I'm out of words. But I know that we are a peaceful country. We, you know, we have thousands of years, the opportunity to occupy another piece of land. We didn't do that. But what would you say? How do you say it? 
this, this is the thing. Uh, for example, right now, uh, Taiwan. I thought it's so funny when the when the media headlines said that Russia invading Ukraine gives the mainland the opportunity to now ta invade Taiwan. Well, give me a break. If China wanted to take Taiwan, they could have taken it in 50 years ago, 60 years ago. When I was in Taiwan in the 70s, I was in the U.S. Air Force in Taiwan from 76 to 78. And I thought I was there to defend Taiwan. And I was so afraid when I went to Taiwan, I knew I was going to go to war and die. So I gave my car to my sister because I thought I'd die of war in Taiwan. I did go back to the U.S. two years later. She still hasn't given back my car. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I saw all this fear in the 70s. And all these years, they talk about mainland being a threat to Taiwan. But seriously, the, China is a peaceful country. And even, I love Swinson's Art of War. I wrote a book for Beijing University Press, a textbook, The, the Art of Business Warfare. And I use Swinson's Art of Warfare. And that's the best manual for warfare. But the art of war, the best manual in history about war, says avoid war if possible. War is the last resort. Use peaceful means. And Chinese throughout history have done that. To show you how things don't change, let, let, let me show you something that I read that just amazes me. It's in July 1891, here in Xiamen, on July 4th, we celebrated July 4th, U.S. independence, and the Fujian governor gave a toast to America in Xiamen. And he said, this is brilliant, he could have been a prophet. He said, Chinese, having followed its own principles of advancement during more than 5,000 years, is now compelled to change and move along European channels. And he said, it has begun its own steamships and railways. Its telegraph now covers every province, mills, forges, etc." He said, China is today learning that lesson in education, which Europe has obliged her to learn, the art of killing, mm. the science of armies and navies. Actually, China knew that long ago. China had weapons unimaginable a thousand years ago, yeah. but they used them only for defense. He said, woe then, this is the Fujian governor, 130 years ago, woe then to the world if the scholar profiting by her lesson should apply it in turn. With its freedom from debt, its inexhaustible resources, and its teeming millions, this empire, China, might be the menace, if not the destroyer of Christendom. But then he says this, no matter what happens, it needs no prophetic gift to know that the 20th century will see at the forefront of the nations, China and the East, and America in the West. Well, may we pray that for the welfare of humanity, their purposes will be as peaceful and upright as today. First time I read that, I cried because I, 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 he was so sincere. And they really did hope that the US and China would work East and West for just upright principles. And then what happened? Although there are some signs of relief, but things are not rosy, to say the least, um, you know, right after the meeting between President uh, Biden and President Xi, you have uh, Vice President uh, Harris talking about, uh, you know, again, stepping on red lines that China has said. And the, what worries me the most is the public opinion not just in the United States, but in other Western countries where unfavorability of China has gone up considerably over the past few years, according to, for instance, uh, uh, Pew Research, um, what 82% of people in 2022 surveyed in Western countries actually are unfavorable about China. So this is the result. It, it, what, what accounts for this? I'm not going to put my opinion in your words. What accounts for this? Okay. What to do? How, how to get out of it? What can China do? Well, the big problem is 
as Xi Jinping has said several times, um, 21 years ago uh, in Fuzhou, when Xi Jinping was our governor, he gave me honorary citizen of Fujian. And at dinner that night, he said, so China understands the world, but the world doesn't understand China. We need to better tell China's story. And he encouraged me to write more books. At Are that we time. doing that so job well? It seems that we're not but doing that job very well, given the rating. I think we're getting better. I think we're getting better at it. But the problem is, and this again, leaders of China, including Xi Jinping, have mentioned many times, is that the West controls the media. I mean, how could they say 120 years ago that they're breaking up China, but China is a threat to the world? And they said that, and people accepted that because the media was controlled, and they control it today as well. So it's hard to get China's story out there. I mean, when I go back to the US or I leave China, I'm in another country, and I read the headlines, wow, it's horrifying. And if I didn't know the truth for myself and I hadn't been here, and how do people know any better? Yeah. They don't know. When I first came to China yeah. and saw what the country was like and what the people were like, I was shocked how different it was, mm. it was from what the media portrayed. Yeah. I started writing about it, and my okay. family and friends were angry about it. So here's the problem, though. Some journalists have asked me, how can we overcome the Western media's negative portrayal of China? I think at this point, it's not easy to. I mean, you've heard the phrase that history is written by the victors, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's another thing I've added to that. Today's news is written by the victor's descendants. They have the power, <laughs> they have the, the money, they control yeah. the, net, the network. But I oh. think actions speak louder than words. Yeah. Professor Brown, I'm going to ask this one last question. It's a little bit personal, but I am curious because there are actually quite a number of people who are like you, who are, who are really friendly to China and known China for years and years and years. But if I going to ask you one thing that you still haven't gotten used to here in China, <laughs> is there one? What would it be if so? Uh, if there's one thing I haven't got used to in China. <laughs> that, that's a difficult one. That's a hard question because <laughs> I've been here 34 years and, oh goodness, I wish you'd have, I wish I had a heads up on that question. Well, that shows that you, you, you're so comfortable, you're so used to the life. The thing is, is I, 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 this is home and I appreciate the spirit of the people. I appreciate the warm heartedness that it's family, we're a big family. And, and every time I leave the country, every time I leave Shaman and I go to another place, when I come back, I just feel, ah, I'm back. Mm. So I can't really think of anything <laughs> that I still feel uncomfortable with. I'm sure there are things, but I don't think about them. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the spirit you need to have when you're living in a different country. You, you immerse yourself right in that, uh, in that lifestyle. Thank you so much. We have to leave it there. Professor William Brown joining us from Shaman University. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. <laughs>